Good morning, I'm Stephen. We're going to read from Mark, yes, Mark, 15, 16 to 41. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthi, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be together, and uh, it's nice to smell the smell of sausages in the air. Uh, I hope it's not making you too hungry, and you know, stay focused. Food will come soon. Um, if you're watching online, then it's lovely to have you with us as well, and I want you to type in the chat, say, high five, 
to all the tech crew today. We seem to have been hit by some sort of lightning that zapped some of our boxes over here, but they've managed to get around it and make it work. Quite the miracle. Well done, tech team, for serving the wider church who can't be here with us today. As Matt already mentioned, it's November and the year is flying along in so many ways, and I'm really pumped for these final few weeks to make a difference for eternity in this year before we get to the new year. Uh, obviously, there's lots of things happening. Now, Sundays are a big part of what we do as a church, and I just want to give you a little run-through today of what the plan is for the coming couple of months' worth of Sundays. Uh, the rest of this month is uh, all about the final four weeks in this series we've been doing, Christianity Good and True. Uh, next week, we're going to see how Christianity gives a better answer to the question of evil and why stuff goes wrong in the world better than any other alternative possibly can. The week after that, as you heard, we're going to be thinking about how the Bible is very radically pro-women, which uh, goes against what so many people think what the Bible is on about. And we're going to have uh, Ruth Baker joining us that day to give it, do a bit of a Q&A. It's going to be very helpful. The 28th, we're going to see how Christianity fights against hypocrisy, which is very important when sometimes in the church you get these acts of hypocrisy that are very shameful. Uh, that's the rest of this series. Then we roll over into December. Uh, Christmas is on its way, hopefully not interrupted by COVID in any way this year. And we're going to be doing four weeks on how significant it is that God became a human. God in skin, God making himself known, God dealing with us also in the mix as our carols night. So many really good big things coming up in the coming weeks to help you as a Christian to grow stronger, but also for you to be uh, helping you to engage with your friends. I hope you'll make the most of them. Uh, today, though, a topic dear to my heart, uh, seeing how Christianity is true and good and not fairy tales. Uh, all of us have friends who are not Christians. You know, they're not trusting Jesus with their lives, not entrusting their eternities to Him. All of us have friends like that, and they have those sort of views for all sorts of different reasons. And for some, they're not a Christian because they just flat out don't think a God exists at all in any way. Hardened atheists. For some, they believe that there's something out there beyond what we can see, but they just aren't quite sure what it is yet. They haven't quite made up their minds on what they believe. Uh, other people, uh, and maybe you know many people in this category, they were once Christians. They were once here in the building with us. They followed Jesus, but they walked away from it for one reason or another. All sorts of different reasons why people are not believers. What do you say to those people? How do you help those people? Well, obviously, there's some very targeted things you can say and try and address with people based on their, their particular circumstances. But I want to suggest today that there's one big thing that you could help all of them to do that would be a massive step forward for everyone in those categories. And it's to ask them this question, when was the last time you read one of the Gospels in the Bible? When was the last time you cracked open a Bible, read one of the four Gospels? And what did you actually think of it when you did? You know, to, to the person who is kind of flat out denying that God exists, when was the last time you read a gospel? Because it's really important to work out which God, which God it is that you're not believing in. You know, is it the God who has chosen to show himself to us in history through the Lord Jesus? Or is it some other God that you've kind of got going on in your head based on your research? Because there's a massive difference. It pays to be clear on this. To the person who, who believes something, there's going to be something true out there, but, but they're just not quite sure what it is. Have, have you read one of the Gospels? When was the last time you did it? Because once you actually crack open the Gospels and you read about Jesus, you realise he's not just another good teacher. He's not just another in the pantheon of religious alternatives. He is unique. He stands alone in what he says and what he does and what he claims. When did you last read a Gospel? To the person who has walked away from Christianity, thrown out Christianity. When did they last read a gospel? Because I kind of get it. 
at times the Christian life is hard and challenging and there are all sorts of things kind of pushing against us. But when you consider Jesus and who he is, have you walked away from him as well? Or is it just the kind of church that you're struggling with? If you're a Christian person, I don't want you to weasel out of this either. When was the last time you read a gospel? You know, when was the last time you spent some time working your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke or John? Because we need these things on repeat in our heads. This is the guy we are relying on. We are trusting everything to him. We'd be crazy to ignore his life, even though we've heard it all before. Reading the gospels, I think, is, is essential if you're going to properly make up your mind about Jesus. And look, if you can't be bothered reading it, maybe reading's not your thing, listen to the audiobook. You, know, you can get some lovely British actors reading it out. It'll, it'll, it'll be delightful. It'll be a lovely experience. And if you can't even be bothered doing that, my strong encouragement is watch The Chosen. You've heard me talking about it. If you haven't watched it yet, you need to do it. it it's like a, a retelling of the Gospels. Helps you to see how true and real and right and normal it is. Now, really highly recommended The Chosen. Google it, you'll find it. Whatever you do, engage with the Gospels. And as you do, you can do it with the confidence that what you're reading is not just wishful thinking. What you're reading is not fiction. You're not reading lies that have been deliberately devised to try and deceive you. This is not fairy tales. Uh, I've got six points to make. Uh, we will whiz through them all. Hold on to your hats. The first one is that all history involves trust. You know, pe people like to write off the Gospels all the time on the basis that, you know, there's, there's just not enough solid, tangible, touchable evidence that I can observe with my own eyes. You know, how can I trust reading these words that are so old? You know, if there was some CCTV footage of Jesus, then yes, that's believable. You know, if we found some dunny graffiti, Jesus was here, then, you know, starting to step up in our minds. But, but how can we just rely on these old, ancient accounts? The problem is, if you take that sort of approach, being sceptical about written accounts, then it wouldn't just be Jesus that you're waving goodbye to, it'd be waving goodbye to the vast majority of human history and also all of human knowledge. You want to know about Julius Caesar, about Cleopatra, about Shakespeare then you have no choice but to listen to what people at the time wrote about them. That is the only way. There's this famous, famous battle in ancient history, the Battle of Actium, uh, off the coast of, of uh, Greece in 31 BC, a naval battle, more than 700 ships, 5,000 deaths. And scholars don't doubt that it took place. The evidence is very clear. However, that knowledge relies completely on the written sources. No hard, firm archaeological evidence for it has ever been found. No shipwrecks, no bones. And scholars are mostly okay with that. Because written sources are not untrustworthy. If you want to know anything about the ancient world, then at some point you've got to trust what people have written down about the topic. You've got to trust that they weren't always lying. They weren't always trying to deceive you. And the same thing goes for anything in this world, really. There's very little that we can observe with our own two eyes and think about with our own brain. So much of what we know to be true, we have learned from others. We've heard from others. We've, we've trusted others are telling us the right thing here. And, and does that mean that anytime you hear some ancient account, you should just take it on face value? Gosh, no. There's logic and reason to this. I studied ancient history at uni, uh, at Macquarie Uni. It's a field, the study of history, that is actually rather scientific. 
in how it approaches things. There are these established rules that scholars follow on how to interpret the data. You know, you look for external corroborations. You look for signs of independence. You look for signs of bias. You look for signs of collusion. Historians are very much like detectives. You know, they're gathering all the evidence they possibly can and they're sifting through it all. They're learning from it. They're joining the dots. They're putting the pieces together. That's what scholars do for the study of history as a whole. And it's also what scholars do for the study of Jesus. And as they do that, they come to the very firm conclusion that Jesus very definitely existed. You do occasionally hear this claim that uh, Jesus didn't exist, he's just kind of made up, you see it getting trotted out on the internet every now and then, or, you know, at Easter time, it it pops up in National Geographic documentaries. Uh, The claim is that Jesus is just this kind of hero invented by the church, because they needed to kind of have a hero at the centre of their their new religion, so they kind of invented this guy, and, and it usually gets paired up with some kind of wacky claim that the first Christians were just like copying the stereotypical hero, like, like Horus or Mithras, when uh, they were inventing the dude. Here's the reality, though. Forget what the National Geographic people have to say or the, or the Facebook experts. There is not one single professional ancient historian in all the world who thinks that Jesus did not exist. Not the one. Occasionally, you do get a book or an article published making some kind of sensational claim about Jesus being a myth... But then you read the details and you discover that it's like a person with a PhD in botany or dentistry or something like that. You know, they're not an expert in the study of history. Those who are an expert in that field agree. Jesus totally existed. John Dixon is an Australian ancient historian, a Christian, a writer. You've probably read some of his books. He's a good good guy. He issued a challenge a couple of years ago that, that if you can find a professional historian who thinks that Jesus didn't exist, he will happily eat a page out of his Bible. And as far as I know, his Bible is still intact. Because such an expert just does not exist. Graham Clark is an historian at the Australian National University in Canberra. He's not a Christian, but he's an expert in the area. And he has said to John Dixon, he said, Frankly, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian that would have even a twinge of doubt about the existence of Jesus. The documentary evidence is simply overwhelming undoubtedly Jesus is real and the scholarly consensus comes to that point because like the professor says there are all these other sources that back up the Bible. Just like in a, in a court of law today when it comes to studying history you want as many sources as you can get, you want a big number of sources and you also want as, as many varied sources, independent sources as you can get your hands on. Once you've got those two things, lots of sources and varied sources, historians start getting happy because then it means that you can start determining that you're not being fed lies. And when it comes to Jesus, both of those boxes get a big old tick. You know, before you even crack open a Bible, you can know heaps of stuff about Jesus, important stuff about Jesus. He gets talked about by these non-Christian writers in the first and second century. They're no fans of Jesus, they're no fans of Christianity, they do not have an axe to grind to try and prop up the Christian faith, quite the opposite, but they talk about what they know to be true from the time, and it says a whole lot about Jesus. From outside the Bible, you can learn that Jesus lived in Galilee and then in Jerusalem. You can learn that he lived in the first century, that he was a famous teacher, that he was famous for doing miracles, that he had devoted followers that he was given the title Christ, that he was put on trial in front of a Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified in Jerusalem. 
that plenty of people claim to have seen him rise from the dead. All of these things you can learn without ever opening the pages of the Bible as an ancient historian. And if you know your Bible, and I guess most of us probably do, you know that all of those things pair up perfectly with what you do find when you open the Bible. These non-Christians from the time period confirm what the Scriptures have to say. And even when you do then open up your Bible and start reading one of the Gospels, you, at the same time, still keep on getting this, uh, this lovely historical reality that you have independent sources talking about the same event. The New Testament isn't just written by one person, but it's 27 different books, different works, written by nine different people. And when it comes to the, the Gospels themselves, four different writers, although, although they do sometimes lean on some, some shared source material, they all come from different angles, different perspectives. They talk about Jesus in different ways. They emphasize different things. But on the core things that matter, the Gospels agree. Historians see that and it brings a smile to their face because it means we're starting to get to the truth. The Gospels, to put it simply, are an academically credible source for knowing what happened at that time. When I did ancient history, I opened up the pages of my Bible in classes with non-Christian lecturers, because they are very happy to read it and go, yeah, we're seeing here what's going on. Secular historians agree on this because, for one thing, there's all of this corroboration from outside the Bible. For another reason, they think that the Gospels are helpful when it comes to history, is that there are all these clues in the Gospels that the Gospels are resting on eyewitnesses. You read through the Gospels, particularly when you kind of do it in comparison with other ancient literature from the time, and it just screams in your face, we were actually there. We actually saw these things taking place. The, the Gospels are packed full of observations and details that, frankly, only an eyewitness would be able to recall. They, they show this kind of really detailed, intimate knowledge of first century Palestinian life. The, the architecture and the road systems and the town names and the, the city elevations and the religious customs and the political tensions and the food preferences and the agricultural practices and the plants and the kind of names that you use. It's extremely detailed. And if they were just making this up, if, you know, if, if the Gospels were someone sitting back writing historical fiction, then there's just no way in the world that they'd be able to go to this level of detail. Especially when you consider that the people who are writing the Gospels are not living in the place where all the action is taking place. We're fairly sure they were not living in Jerusalem or in Galilee when the Gospels were being written down. So they couldn't, you know, just nip on down to take a little tour to kind of write down some details to fill in their, their fake story. They couldn't just jump on Wikipedia and, and, and search for, like, life in the time of Jesus. The only way these things were known by these people is because they were listening to those who had been there, seen it. The New Testament Gospels are accurate in a way that is stunning to historians. And, and you really start to appreciate how accurate they are when you compare them to the, the so-called Gnostic Gospels. You know, you've got, the, got our four Gospels in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, jump forward about a century and you start getting these other Gospels being produced. And, and occasionally the case gets made, usually on National Geographic, that, ooh, the church suppressed these legitimate sources of truth. But no historian takes that seriously. Because you open up a Gnostic Gospel... And it's like you're reading fan fiction. It's all vague, it's all generic, there's no details. 
That's what you get when you're inventing stories. But when someone does present the details, when they're able to be specific and, and detailed and accurate, like, like Matthew, Mark and Luke and John are able to be, then that gets historians excited. You also get these, these little clues in the Gospels about the kind of eyewitnesses that they were relying on. You get these names getting dropped all throughout the Gospels and it kind of pricks the ears of interested historians because you wonder, why on earth are they dropping these names? Why bring up this particular person? And scholars in the last couple of decades have started making the case convincingly that these names are getting dropped into the Gospels in order to flag for the first readers, this is the person I was actually getting my info from. So, for instance, in the uh, bit that we just read uh, from Mark's account of Jesus going to the cross, uh, we read that the cross got carried for Jesus by Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you find this whole thing, that's kind of random, right? Like, why on earth bring up Alexander and Rufus? We haven't never heard of them before. They don't appear again in the story. What's going on? It would seem that this kind of detail gets included because it would have made sense to the first century listeners. They would have gone, oh yeah, Alexander and Rufus, I used to go to church with those guys. Isn't it cool that their dad was the one who carried the cross for Jesus? This all makes, starts making sense now. This isn't being conjured from nothing. We have good proof to show that the gospel writers were relying on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And another thing that gives scholars heaps of confidence about the gospels is that the gospels would make pretty terrible propaganda. You know, if, you're, if you were just making up a story, inventing a tale to try and prop up your new religion, give it some legitimacy, there is no way in the world that this is the story that you would make up. You know, instead what you'd do is you'd go into the story and get a little bit Kardashian, you know, start airbrushing out all the stuff that makes you look a little bit ugly. You know, if propaganda was the point, then you wouldn't leave in details like the apostles looking foolish. In the first century, the apostles were these respected leaders of the church. They were the people who were telling others about Jesus and building people up in Jesus. But you read the Gospels and they look like dum-dums. They deny Jesus. They walk away from Jesus. They doubt Jesus. No way you'd put that in if this is just a made-up bit of propaganda. Jesus being rejected by his own family. It's a shameful thing in an ancient culture. Jesus being crucified like the worst of criminals. If you're making this up, you're going to figure out some other, far more respectable death for your heroes who have died. When you stop and consider just how embarrassing so many of the details of the gospel would have been to the first Christians, just how much it set back their cause to include these details in the gospels, you start realising there's just no way in the world this is made up. They are presenting the facts, warts and all, because it matters to them that they tell the truth. One last thing to say about our New Testament Gospels, and it's that they are written early and they don't get changed. Now, this one needs to be talked about because of the pesky Da Vinci Code, uh, which I'm guessing has got to be, what, like at least 15 years old now, but it still sits in the back of many people's psyche. It gave off this impression that the Gospels are just fiction written hundreds of years after the fact. That, you know, they took these kind of embryonic stories of like a, an impressive teacher and they kind of amplified them, jazzed them up a bit so that Jesus started looking like God. And, you know, they chuck in the mix the idea that Constantine was kind of pulling strings in the background and picking some books and not others and, and editing it for his own purposes. 
People believe that. But not many historians believe that. And the reason not many historians believe that is because you can date the Gospels. Historians can, can look at what we have in these texts and figure out the date that they were written. And most historians agree that they're all written in the first century. Many would even argue that they're written finished by 70 AD, which would make them some of the earliest witnesses in all of history to the events that they are describing. The gap is tiny in comparison to so many other things we know about the past. We're also able to be confident that what we have in our Bibles today is not the process of kind of constant change. You know, this idea that you kind of get in your head from Chinese whispers that they're passing on information and then as it gets copied, someone sneaks in a few little theological ideas that they want to put in and then it just sort of gets moulded and twisted and what we have in our Bibles today is nowhere near the original documents. We know that that is not the case because for the New Testament, we have documentary evidence. Uh, Thankfully, Egypt is a very dry place once you get out of the, the Nile Delta and you get these rubbish tips where people chucked out broken pottery and often the broken pottery was stuffed full of paper and often on that paper were written texts and many of those texts are the texts of the New Testament. Ancient copies of the Bible. They go right back to within about a century of the original documents being written by the original people, which is, which is unheard of in the world of scholarship. You just don't get that kind of evidence. And as you take these documents that you dig out of the sand and you look at them and you compare them, you realise that the early Christians really, really cared about making sure that they copied the documents as accurately as they could. They, they, they took great pains to make sure that they were copying things accurately, carefully, not adding in details, not embellishing. They knew that what they had in front of them was true and that it was important to preserve what was true. The documentary record shows that the church has kept a really good track of what was first written. You can have confidence that when you open your Bible, you're reading the words that were written by the original author. Now, let me recap a little bit. We've seen a lot. All history involves trust. It's just like a fundamental principle. All knowledge involves trust, really. Now, Jesus definitely existed. Among the, the experts, there is no doubt The sources of info about Jesus actually kind of corroborate. They back up what the Bible has to say. The Gospels get credibility when you start taking into account the wider body of evidence. The Gospels rest on eyewitnesses. People who were there, who saw what took place. The Gospels would make pretty terrible propaganda. The idea that they're being written to kind of make up a story that would help the church just doesn't check out. And lastly, they're written early and they don't get changed. What's in your Bible is truthful. Add all that up and what do you get? I think you get the ability to read the Gospels with confidence. I think you get the ability to allow yourself, when you read the Gospels, to be truly life-changingly delighted by what you read there. Because you know that you're not being fed lies. If you have the the courage to go and open up your New Testament, take an hour of this Arvo and and read through one of the Gospels, it will not take you long, you will find good news. You'll find stuff that will start rewiring your brain and make you smile. 
And I love, I love that God does not require us to just trust it blindly. I love that God has given us the ability to check what happened to Jesus and to know that what we have in our Bibles checks out logically. You are not a dum-dum if you read a gospel today and it brings you peace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, for everything he did and everything he said and everything he, he stood for. Thank you for the way he gives us good news. And thank you, Lord, that we can read about him and know that it is satisfyingly accurate. Thank you that we don't have to switch off our rational brains in order to be Christians. Lord, we have friends who are not sure about Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. We pray that we might be able to help them to read a gospel and to ponder it, to see Jesus anew and to know that this is true. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.